You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, if you thought you were going to get a reprieve from uh, Chad's sermon last week, and this one will be a little bit lighter, nope, not even close, not close at all. So we're going to put our memory verse up for this week. We have that. Not going to do it? Okay, very good. Oh, there it is. Well, I could show off and act like I had memorized, but I'll just lend some security and comfort to you, and I'll look at it too as we, <laughs> let's see here. Ephesians, what did Paul have to say there? You want to read it together? How about we do it out loud? You ready? Here we go. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, I love reading the prison epistles. It sheds new context on a verse that the Lord has provided for us when you realize the author was in prison. And what was he in prison for? What was Paul always in prison for? Doing exactly what we're doing here this morning. It, being a Christian comes with sacrifices. And as we look at Luke chapter 17 today, you're going to see some things here because this is directed towards you and I. If you're a born-again believer here this morning, and in particular, if you are in a position of leadership in the church, if you're a mature Christian, this is direct, directed towards you and I. And we have to look at this maturity level of the Christian as a sliding scale. If you've been a Christian for a week, you might be a little bit more mature than a Christian, a person who's been a Christian for less than a week. A year, maybe more mature than someone who's been a Christian for six months and so on and so forth. So being a Christian is an all-inclusive deal. We can't pick and choose the parts of Scripture or obedience to Christ that we find comfortable and appealing and discard the rest. That's not what we're to do. When the Lord saves us, because our sins indeed were many, he called us into a ministry. You may say, I don't get paid for uh, being a pastor or a preacher, an evangelist, and so forth, or leading the worship. But if you're a born-again Christian, you have at least one ministry, if not several. And you're called to fulfill those things because God called and saved you for a purpose. And that purpose is to accomplish his will. So how do we go about doing that? Well, we do it in several different ways, and one of those we're going to examine, well, two or three of those we're going to examine here this morning. Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. So I'm going to go ahead and read those to you. Here's Dr. Luke, who is also a great historian, a very detailed man. He's with Paul, in, uh, accompanying Paul while he's in prison in Rome, and he's there for about two years, and during this time, Paul or Luke writes what we call the book of Luke and also the book of Acts. So Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. Then he said to the disciples, this is Jesus speaking, 
Then he said to the disciples, it is impossible that no offense should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, well, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to say to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he rather not say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise, you, when you have done all these things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. These seem a let, rather a little disjointed. And even the commentators, the, the wise men who I've read quite a few of the commentaries on this, had a little trouble putting all this into context into one, but we're gonna be able to do it. We're gonna look at verses one and two as a section, verses one and two. Then we're gonna look at verses three and four. Then we're gonna look at verses five and six and verses seven through 11. And we're gonna spend about 90% of the sermon this morning on verses one through four with five and six, seven, five through 11, kind of catching us at the tail end. We're gonna catch up with those. So God himself informs the apostles we're not exactly sure who the entire audience was. You know, oftentimes when you're speaking to someone, you may single out a group within that audience. And it, this is what we think the Lord might have been doing. Now, I'm going to speak to the apostles, to the saved ones here, the ones that are calling themselves apostles. We don't know if there were other people listening to this, but we're going to take it at face value and assume, I think accurately, that the lesson here is directed toward the apostles, not just the uh, um, disciples, but not just the apostles, but the disciples also. You and I would fall under that categories as disciples of the Lord. We're followers of the Lord. So it can be the apostles, it can be the disciples, it's the believers, and there may be a core, another core audience out there listening, taking all this in. And he says to them, in this life, offenses will be a reality for the Christian. They are unavoidable. Now, these offenses are unavoidable for all of mankind, but specifically for the Christian. John 15, 18 says, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. So when we become born-again believers in Christ, we can expect certain complications to come our way. And in particular, the word offenses is used here, and we're going to examine that here in just a moment. So as we look at verse 1 and 2, we need to be aware that we need to be self-aware of our actions. You and I need to have situational awareness of our physical actions, what we do, how we interact with people, and, and 
I'm just going to move forward in all my preaching and teaching from now on, as I have for the last couple of years. I'm going to assume everything that we do, the majority of it, somehow ends up on social media. I'm just, you have to default to that. Everywhere we go, there's a camera, right? Everywhere we go, somebody's standing there with their phone. And we post so much on social media. It used to be if you and I, we would go out to dinner, we would go somewhere and something untoward would happen. It would stay in that little circle right there, but not anymore. We're in a very public arena. Cameras are everywhere. And that, the law says you have no reasonable expectation of privacy in a public area. When you're out on the streets or you're in the mall, even though the mall is a private thing, but it's still commercial, Walmart or wherever, the law says you have no REP in those places. People don't have to ask you if I can film you. You have no reasonable expectation of privacy. So when we're out doing life, we need to default, as uncomfortable as that may be, that people are watching us and it's gonna be recorded. We can't really hide anymore. It's all out there for the public to see. So we need to be self-aware of our actions. In verses three and four, we're gonna look at the consequences of those actions. In verses five and six, guess what? You already have enough faith to do what God's called you to do. You and I have enough. In verse seven through 11, which we'll only spend a couple of minutes on, let's get over ourselves. Let's get over ourselves. We don't expect a trophy for just showing up as a Christian. So if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. The world is broken. It's broken. Is God good and kind to us? Yes, he is, but it's broken. Since Adam and Eve decided to say, no, Lord, I don't believe I'll be doing that. I believe I'll be doing my own thing. And as a result of those words, those actions, you and I, here we are all these years later, we are still suffering the effects of their decision. That's what sin does. It goes out and it spreads out like those ripples in the water. It goes on and on and on and on and on. And because of their sin, you and I are living in a broken world. Now, Jesus says here, these offenses that find us. Well, of these, he says, these offenses, they're gonna find you. They're gonna, they're gonna seek you out. And you know what? We expect the unsaved to offend us, to give us a hard time. You ever try to witness to somebody and it goes south? We expect that, right? At work, you know, maybe somebody give you a hard time. Here comes the holy roller. Here come, you know, you're that one at work, right? We expect it. That's the world. Kathy and I say that all the time when these things happen. That's the world. What do you expect from the world? And it's impossible to avoid these things. And Jesus, we have to look at it like this. He's kind enough to let us know that, that it's guaranteed. He, wants, he doesn't want us to be caught off guard. Like this is some special thing that has happened. And we keep in the back of our mind when we think about these things, what happened to the apostles themselves, at least 11 of them? How did their life end? They were martyred, right? What did they do to Jesus? What did he ever do wrong? Did he break any laws, any Roman laws? No, he never did anything wrong. Did he, was he ever corrupt? Did he ever hurt anybody? No, he did nothing. And how did his earthly presence end, at least in the eyes of the lost on earth, on a cross, right? So we can expect that these offenses are going to come. We expect the lost world to, to deliberately lay traps for us. They enjoy seeing us stumble in sin. They want to discredit us. They want to bes they besmirch us. They really get a kick out of portraying us as religious hypocrites. And we need to be aware of that. At the same time, when these offenses come, it's a reminder, this world is not our home. 
It's not. Stop trying to fix it. Stop trying to expect everything to be perfect. It's not. Every fresh breath of air we take, every nice morsel of food that we have is a blessing from God in a sinful world of which we do not deserve. Stop defaulting and expecting the world to be perfect. It's not going to happen. We see it collapsing around us. We see what's going on. We can expect this. And this world, this is not our home. You can rejoice in that. This is not as good as it gets. Now, we, many of us, I don't see anybody going too hungry here. I hope, I hope you're not. We all have problems and concerns, but this is not our home. And when the world offends us, we don't worry. The Lord sees that. They're going to be judged for it. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You don't have to worry about them. But it's not specifically the world whom Jesus is addressing here when he speaks of causing an offense. Let me ask you this. What hurts more when a Christian wounds you or a lost person? I'm going to tell you, you know, I always talk about open air preaching because that's what, that's my thing. Some of the worst just tongue latchings I've ever got is from people who lead with, I'm a Christian and they have no problem telling you how wrong you are, but they themselves never lift a hand to win the lost. I had a young man with a level college shirt. That's the New Orleans Baptist Seminary one day. Flat out just contradict me when I was witnessing the lost people. I said, is that church yours? I said, is that the Baptist Seminary? I thought maybe he'd got it at you know, some store or something. He goes, yeah. I said, you go there? He goes, yeah. And was arguing with me about the exclusivity of Jesus, that Jesus wasn't the only way. Doesn't that wound you when it comes from a Christian? It hurts a little bit more, hurts a lot more. We expect it from the world. Wounding a Christian. Have you ever been the wounder? Have you been the offender? Have you been the one that brought the offense? What Jesus is saying here is we need to be very sensitive. You and I should never, through our actions, directly or indirectly, lead a fellow believer into sin. God takes sin very, very seriously. We may not think our sin is a very big deal, a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but to an infinitely high and holy God who cannot have sin in his presence, our sin is infinitely offensive to him. How serious does God take sin? Well, we know in the book of Matthew, it says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Now, Jesus is not condoning self-mutilation there, but what he's saying is, that's how serious I take sin. If this action, this part of your life, including your arm or your leg, and again, he's not condoning self-mutilation, but he's making a point there. This is how serious it is. Do away with it. At a minimum, he is saying in no uncertain terms, let me warn you, Christian, woe to you if it is due to your actions or inactions that these sins, these offenses come. Notice the word he uses here is offensive. I found this very interesting. He doesn't say, woe to you if you bring these troubles or these troubles come to you or these problems come to you, or these mistakes come to you, or these errors in judgment come to you. He uses the word offenses here. And of course, that's an English word. And we know that the New Testament was written in Koine or common language Greek. But the word offenses captures it perfectly. It captures the full meaning of what Jesus intended to convey, convey to his disciples, to us. The word used in this context is a legal term. 
It's used in criminal cases. And when we read the New Testament, we'll see a lot of these legal terms, guilt, guilty, guiltless, judgment, pardon, sin, law, penalty, convicted, condemned, truth, trial, justice, judgment, justification. And we often think of that when we see those words pertaining to the unsaved, and it is true. Before you were saved, before you were converted, before you repented, before you put your trust in Christ, you were indeed a spiritual criminal. You had broken God's moral laws. And as such, you were a guilty spiritual criminal. That's why Jesus sends people to hell. That's why they go to hell. We don't go to hell because we didn't ask Jesus into our heart. That's not even in the Bible because we accepted Jesus. That's not in the Bible. Now, if you got saved by doing that, great. God can use poor theology to save us. I actually got saved like that using those words, you know? The important thing is we got saved. But Jesus doesn't send people to hell because they didn't quote unquote accept him. That, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. And that's what confuses the unsaved world. The reason that people end up in hell is because they're criminals. They've broken the law, the moral law, at least the Ten Commandments, right? There's a set of laws there. You violated them. And the penalty is you're guilty and a just judge can't let you go. It wouldn't be just. And unless you repent, turn from your sins, you're going to pay the fine for your errors, for your crime, for your sins. But Jesus is rich in mercy, not willing that any should perish. If we'll repent, turn from our sins and put our trust in him, judge Jesus comes down, puts his robe on you, you're now free to go because he paid the penalty for you. So that's why we see these legal terms in the scriptures. And it's very apropos to think that. This is like a court case. It is. It really, really is. So back to you and I, the offenses. Now he's, now he's addressing us. Judge Jesus, the just judge is speaking to you and I. Now, the legal definition of the word offenses, these offenses are, and I looked this up in a law dictionary, these offenses are conduct that is in direct violation of existing law and are therefore punishable by law. And what is sin? Sin is a violation of God's law. He says, woe to you, woe, woeful, distressed with grief, afflicted is what this means, if you're the person through whom these offenses come. And we talked earlier about the Christian being in different states of maturity. And he says, woe to you if you as a mature Christian cause these little ones to sin. And he's not talking about children here. I learned this. It includes children, but it's not directed towards the young, chronologically young. It's directed towards the brand new Christian. And here's where we're going to start feeling the heat here in just a moment. You as a mature Christian, woe to you if you cause a new brother or sister by your actions to stumble and fall into sin. These little ones, the recently saved, the young in the faith, the new Christian, the babes in the faith. Romans 14.1 says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. Romans 14, 13 says that you and I should resolve, we should have it clear in our mind, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. We're to think about these things. The actions I'm about to take could they cause my brother or sister to stumble or fall? 
We're gonna leave here this morning with not some exact answers. You're not gonna get exact, exact answers from this sermon. You're gonna leave here this morning as I prepared for this sermon with a set of principles that we're gonna have to work out on our own. You're gonna have to work these out. I'm gonna have to work these out. You can come and talk to me or Chad or Jack or some of us that have been doing this for a while, Brother Sam, of course, Tanner, if you have these issues, but you're gonna have to work these things out for you. And like I said, we're, the, the, the screws are about to get a little tighter on the old thumb here in just a second when I, I, I go through some of these lists of things that we need to think about. You and I are to set aside any personal liberties that I, that I may have in order to be assured I cause no offense or stumbling block of my weaker brother. I am resolved to always maintain spiritual situational awareness, esteeming others more highly than myself. And I don't think anybody in here this morning would deliberately do anything to cause someone to stumble. I, don't, I really don't think you would. But we're going to the deeper level here. We're going below the surface, into the weeds, into the specifics of what the Christian life, as we mature, encompasses. There's so much more to it. I do not want my liberties as a Christian to cause a fellow believer to relapse into sin. I do not want to cause my, I don't want, I do not want my liberties as a Christian to cause a fellow believer to hurt or to be wounded because of my actions. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 says, of you and I, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. Liberty, what does that mean? Yep, and I'm gonna give you a $10 word, which I like to throw out because it makes me feel smart. And that's what most unsmart people do. Adiophora, A-D-I-O-P-H-O-R-I-A. And it, it, it captures exactly what we're talking about here. Adiophora, or adiophoran, which is plural. Liberty, freedom. What does adiophora mean? It's a Greek word. Things neither condoned nor condemned by scripture. Things neither condoned nor condemned by scripture. It's the gray area. Indifferent things, non-foundational things, the exclusivity of Jesus. We don't debate that. The inerrancy of scripture. Those are foundational. These are spiritually neutral and disputable things. That's what adiophora is. Two Soundly saved, mature Christians can differ on these issues. Adiaphora, the things of Adiaphora come into play when we say, man, is this okay for me to do? Is this okay? It's troubling me. It's, man, I'm, I know it's not black and white sinful. We, that issue is resolved. We don't get near that. But man, this is one of those, man, is this okay? And, and, and you're working through this. Could this cause someone to fall back into sin? Is this activity or indulgence? Man, could it influence somebody to, could I, could I be wounding somebody here? Could I cause them to sin, to stumble and fall? And you know, and I gotta ask myself this question. Is this activity that I'm about to partake in, whatever it is, man, is it so important to me that I'm not gonna surrender it? You know, tough. It bothers them, and I'm not responsible for them. I'm not willing to surrender it, even if it could potentially influence a fellow believer to stumble 
and fall into sin. Stumble and fall into sin, you know, you kind of let that go right over your head, but that's what happens, right? We see that sin, we kind of stumble. And if it's serious enough, we fall down, we fall into it. So, may need a drink of water on this one. It's a rough one. It's a rough, rough sermon to preach. That's why uh, most churches don't preach like we do here, expository preaching, where you go verse by verse. They skip this, right? Expository preaching demands you deal with the hard subjects, the hard things. You can't skip them. You got to preach them. All right, so what might some of these adiaphora be? Again, we have to look at all this with the backdrop of social media, right? It's all out there. What might some of these look like? What movies do you go see? Do we still do that anymore? They open it? I mean, do, are they open? I mean, I don't. What movies do you go see? What, what if someone sees you standing in line to see an R-rated movie? What books are you saying that you enjoy on social media? Harry Potter. A lot of divination, a lot of witchcraft, a lot of sorcery. Got on somebody's toes there, didn't I? You, you have to decide. This is between you and the Lord. We could disagree, but you, you have to decide. And the way we do this, we see if it wounds our conscience. Is it bothering our conscience? We never want to do anything to violate our conscience, nor do we want to do anything to cause someone else's conscience to be violated. Music. What concerts do you post that you went and saw? I know some people say all secular music. Uh-uh. I don't necessarily agree with that. But what music... Do you go and see? What concerts do you go and see? Right along the lines of entertainment. What entertainment are you participating in? Language. Did you know that OMG is a blasphemy? It's called a minced oath. When you say OMG, we really know what you mean. That's a minced oath, and that is indeed a blasphemy. We, I will say that we should not be saying that. That's not, that's not appropriate. We're using God's name as some derogatory term, and you're, we're dragging it through the mud. Speaking of language, um, profanity is becoming more and more common in our society and in our culture, and I see it in here, unfortunately, and I have to guard against it. We still have that. We have a new nature, but we have a, a, um, uh, we have a new nature, but we still war against the flesh, right? Surprising how it pops up every now and then. Is that just me? Language. When you put on Facebook, you put the first letter and the last letter with a bunch of special characters in between. We kind of know what you're talking about. All right? Honey, you might want to get the car started on this one. <laughs> Ladies, how do you dress? How do you dress? You dress appropriately? Men are attracted by the visual. Or when you first met your husband, he didn't want to sit down and read a Harlequin Romance with Fabio in it with you. He was attracted to you because of your physical attraction. We're shallow and one-dimensional, I get it. But we're to dress men too, but the ladies in particular, because men are attracted to the visual. We should never do something to cause a brother to stumble and fall, right? Even mentally. We need to dress appropriately. Society is going in the other direction of this, are they not? Right? 
We need to be appropriate. We need to dress appropriate. Casinos. I know you're just going there to eat, right? Got a great buffet. What does it say to the person who's coming out of gambling addiction? Right? We have to think about adiaphron, neither condoned nor condemned. Of course, gambling, it, it, that's a sin. We're not to be doing that. You got the car ready? <laughs> Alcohol. You ever sat down and counsel with a wife or someone who just got out of a marriage and her husband was an alcoholic? Is there alcohol in the, in the scripture? Yeah, there is. Of course, we know that getting drunk is uh, soundly condemned, but alcohol. You got to figure that out. What does it say on Facebook? <sighs> Going to the Saints game on a Sunday. Well, it's just once, or is it season tickets? We have to work these things out. You and I may disagree on these things, but these are the things we have to work out. What do you like on Facebook? What does it say about you? What does it say about your testimony? Man, old Tanner, he's, I can, man, he's a mature, he is a, indeed a very mature young man. I'm very impressed with him. But if I was a brand new Christian, even being an old guy, and I saw him, and not that I have, and I saw him, it's like, man, is it okay to go do that? I just left that. It's not really Tanner's fault. But Jesus is saying here to the disciples, woe to you if you cause one of these little ones to stumble. The Christian life is a life of sacrifice. We have to give up stuff. That's what it is. It's not, we've just been so blessed in this country that's been the norm, but it's not anymore. You know, when I was an aircraft investigator with, our, with our, the agency that I worked for, we would go and do aircraft, investigate aircraft accidents and say, example, for example, someone ran out of gas and crashed. We have to come up with a probable cause. The probable cause is uh, pilot in command failed to ensure adequate fuel supply for proposed trip, resulting in fuel starvation to the engine, and he crashed. Okay, that's a probable cause. He ran out of gas, right? Pilot in command failed to ensure adequate supply of adequate quantity of fuel for the trip. He ran out of gas. You should have planned better, and that's true. But under, that's a conclusion. But under that, there's all these things. It's called present and contributing. Present and contributing. What are some present and contributing things that I've found over the years? Well, it was common knowledge in the, that that aircraft had inaccurate fuel gauges. Everybody knew that. Do you think that might have contributed to the accident? Uh, dispatch asked pilot, not to add any more fuel so they could put more cargo on the airplane. You think that might have contributed? Aircraft was running behind schedule. Pilot felt pressure to not add extra fuel so he wanted to go to get back on schedule. You see all these present and contributing things? That's what we're talking about here, spiritually. You and I, I don't want to be present and contributing to a weaker brother or sister stumbling and falling into sin, Right? So at the end of the day with these things, what, what do we do with this? There, there's not a black and white answer. Listen, this is a heart issue. This is a heart issue. You know, it's, a, it's the same answer you give someone when they ask you, they may ask you, how much do I need to read the Bible? How much do you want to read the Bible? How much do I put in the offering plate? How much do you want to put in the offering plate? How much time should I spend in prayer? How much time do you want to spend in prayer? You see how that turns that around? This is all about a heart issue, and it's not easy. 
these little ones who have a simple faith, just like we all did when we were first born again, almost helpless, no experience to draw from, these men and women who could be easily influenced, not only for good, but to stumble. They're trying to figure all of this out, and so are we. And it's a constant struggle to live a godly life in this sin-soaked world. Indeed, we have a new spirit-filled nature upon salvation. Our conscience is tender. We have a new relationship with sin, but we still battle our old selfish flesh. In one of the commentaries I read, I, I wish I would have wrote down who it was, but it says, anything that leads a Christian away from the pathway of simple faith, of devotedness to the Lord, and a holy, righteous, God-honoring life is a stumbling block. I was like, man, oh, that, that is hard. That's hard stuff. You and I, here's what we need to do. We need to let our Bible-informed, Holy Spirit-guided, prayer-powered conscience be our guide, right? So what do we do? We, we ensure that we're studying God's word, we're at war with sin, we're spending time in prayer, we're doing our ministry, and, and none of this stuff is easy. It's, it's a challenge, you know? But we have to remind ourselves, you and I, we're the best Christian that somebody knows, you're the best Christian that somebody knows, like it or not. And we are influencing them, and they're going to follow our example to some degree. They are. I, I, I admire many of you that I've gotten to know over the last year or so, and I think of you all often, and I want to be more like some of you. Dickie's not here, is he? So, just joking. That's a funny guy. So if you're feeling beaten up, or at least convicted by these verses as I was, guess what? There's more. What about the consequences of those who commit these actions? Let's read verse two. We're only on the second verse. It would be better for him, or conversely, her, it would be better for him or her if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then he should offend one of these little ones. So, Local language, it would be better if an anchor were tied around your neck and you were driven out to the 16-mile hump and you were thrown in Lake Pontchartrain and drowned. Is that literal? Debate. There's debates on that. Um, but at a very minimum, it shows that God takes harming his children very seriously. God is very serious about sin. In Acts, God kills a man and a wife for telling one lie. And again, at a minimum, it shows the absolute seriousness of knowingly participating in any activity which may cause, in particular, a new Christian to stumble. And the emphasis is on, the, on this is that ensuring that you and I are not the offenders. We don't, we don't want to bring the offenses. Now, to close this part out right here, let's, we're going to kind of turn things a little bit and give, you a little, give all of us a little glimmer of, of relief here, if you will. Let's look at it com from a completely different perspective. I'll give you some encouragement here. Just think, if you're a brand new Christian and you're reading this, it shows the protection God has for you. It shows the love that God has for you. And by default, all of us. This is how much the Lord loves all of us. He loves us. He is the perfect protectorate father. He wants the best for us. He doesn't want our children harmed. 
That's how much he cares about you. So when we kind of get wrapped up in all of this and we're trying to determine, should I do this? Shouldn't I do this? We're seeking guidance in this. Remember, this is a heart issue and God's heart for his children is a heart of love, right? He loves us and he wants what is best for us. And all these things in our lives, you may think you don't see this person or that third person throughout the week, but God is orchestrating all things for what his glory and for our good. He uses all of us. We don't live in a vacuum and he wants to accomplish his plan and purpose through us. That's what he does. All right, so let's move on to verses three and four. Take heed to yourselves if you're, this is like a complete break here. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you what? Consider, might, shall. When the law says shall, it means you will. There's no options here. You shall forgive him. The overarching theme of this is the, the defining characteristic of a Christian should be that you and I have a forgiving spirit. You should be the first one that if you should be so approachable as a boss, as a supervisor, as a company owner, as a friend, you should be so approachable that if someone does indeed sin, let's just say sin against you or make a mistake at work or something. We're not even talking about theology here. You should be so approachable they can come to you. We should have be known for that forgiving spirit when we're wronged. And at the same time, when we are the offender, we should be known as having a receptive spirit when confronted with the wrong that we have done. Jesus says to take heed, take note of what I'm about to tell you. This is important. If your brother sins against you, you need to rebuke him. The onus is just the opposite on just the opposite of the world. I've been wronged. Why do I have to go to you to ask for an apology? The world says, no, you'll come to me. I'm the one that is offended. You come to me. Jesus says, no, you go to that brother and sister in Christ. That's very uncomfortable, is it not? That's hard to do. And the reason he says that, he doesn't want your anger or your being upset to fester. He doesn't want you to harbor a grudge. Holding on to a perceived wrong is emotionally draining. It's spiritually damaging and it's physically exhausting. Have you ever been mad at somebody for a long time? Nobody here is married? No, but it's physically exhausting, is it not? And it affects all areas of your life. It takes energy to hold on to that anger. And depending upon the nature and severity of the offenses, it can take a negative, have a negative effect on our health and control our life. Our creator knows what is best for us. This is why he says that you should go to him, not wait on them to come to you. You and I go to that person and talk to them and rebuke them. The Lord knows it is in our best interest to attempt to resolve this issue promptly. The Lord knows a thing or two about conflict resolution between Christians. He is our creator. We need to take positive action to biblically address the issue. We don't need to let it sit out there. And regardless of the immediate outcome of the conversation, you're going to actually feel a lot better in the sense that you've been obedient to what scripture has called you to do. 
You've, you've moved forward, you've t- moved forward, you've taken positive action in a very uncomfortable and certainly not easy command of Scripture, and you've gone and you've done it. And afterwards, you can leave all the results to the Lord. Congratulations, you're now on the road to being a mature Christian. That's what we do. So what about this command to rebuke? Well, to rebuke means to criticize sharply, to reprimand someone. That doesn't mean holler and scream at them. That's not what it's talking about there. It's to be direct and say to them, here's what has occurred. This is what you did. This is why it's wrong. What do you have to say about that? It's the direct approach. It's clear and it's unambiguous. Additionally, when we go to do this, we want our language and our heart to be tempered with what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4.32. We want to keep this in mind. And what does it say? And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We're direct. We get to the point, but we're, we temper it with that attitude right there. And there's many sermons and counseling sessions we can talk about with regard to conflict resolution. But going into it, this is what we do. We're prayed up, we're practiced, and we're prepared before we go to do this. We take it seriously. And a whole other side to this is if it's a guy, it's a guy goes to meet with a guy. If it's a guy and a girl, there's some complications there. You know, a man and a woman, that should never occur. You need to take somebody else with you. Talk to Chad or or, or Brother Sam or some of us so that there's a way to do this properly and biblically without creating even more issues there. But if it's a guy and a guy and a girl and a girl, you go to them privately with a spirit of love and tenderness because you know what? You can be on the receiving end next. How would you want someone to approach you? Approach you? And even though it is a rebuke, it's, the emphasis in the conversation is restoration. That's what we want. We want restoration and forgiveness to take place. And that's what scripture says. If they'll repent, you know, and you'll know what it is. And it may not occur right then. You have to give it some time, but you'll know. A rebuke is not a tongue lashing, which allows us to have some emotional outburst. I'm going to put them in their place. That's not what, it, what the rebuke and the, the conversation is about. We're not there to win. We're not there to give them a piece of our mind. And it may be emotional. And probably to some degree, you know, it, it, it can get a little sporty. But we're two Christians trying to resolve an issue so that God is glorified in it. So what about this repentance stuff? Well, you'll know. You'll know what it is. You know what genuine contrition is. You know when somebody's heartbroken, somebody's genuinely sorry. You'll know. You'll know exactly what it is. Typically, they own the offense. They don't try to shift blame or direct or, oh, you've never done this, this type of stuff. They have a genuine sorrow. You'll, you'll know. They have a genuine sorrow because if you've offended somebody, aren't you heartbroken when it's brought to your attention that you cause that person grief? You upset them? Or even if it turns out to be something you didn't do, that they thought you did this. Aren't you glad they came to you? I mean, doesn't your heart hurt when you think I've done something to cause somebody to be upset or lose sleep or they think lesser of me? Of course it does. You know, we say in the flying business and what I'm in, you know, in law enforcement, it can get a little dangerous sometimes. It's, It's an inside joke and it's not that funny, but it is to us. Hey, it's okay if you go kill yourself, but not your passengers, you know? You know, you, you, it's one thing if I'm operating solely and alone, but I don't want to harm other people. We don't want to do that. You know, this world that we live in, we don't want to grieve and uh, cause anxiety to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, if you're going to do something on your own, well, that's one thing. But our actions have consequences. So what if there's no repentance? What if they 
no, I'm not having any of this. Nope, you're wrong. Give us some time, pray about it. You know, let things calm down. And I don't know if I gave uh, the verses, but the Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is where we go for conflict resolution. That, we want to follow the biblical, biblical command there. Seven times each day. Can you forgive somebody seven times each day or seven times seven? Or just pick your own number there. Well, our sins are many. Did we not speak of that? How many times, how many sins did you commit before God forgave you? And how many sins have you committed since you've become a Christian, which the Lord has forgiven you? Well, when it comes to this genuineness of repentance, sometimes you're going to know, sometimes you're not going to know, and sometimes it's going to take time. You and I as Christians, we're not naive, we're not gullible, we're not doormats to be repeatedly stepped on. We're not required to put ourselves in a position to be harmed by someone else or to be taken advantage of. The consensus among the commentaries, as I read through similar verses in Scripture, it says, kind of gathers it up, captures it with this. I'm to have a spirit of forgiveness, not one of, a re of revenge. My sincere desire is to be restored to, the right, to a right relationship with this brother or sister in Christ. I am grieved at the thought of knowing I could cause a brother or sister Christ, cause a brother or sister in Christ to be wounded. In all things that I do, I always want to take the path which glorifies God, even if, it is I, even if I am the one who rightfully needs to be rebuked. And in my approach to conflict resolution, I should never forget how often indeed that I have been forgiven. When you were saved, you weren't saved because you're a good person. You were saved because you're a very bad person who's been forgiven by a very good God. Amen? Now let's go on to this faith thing as we kind of wrap it up here. Verses five and six. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. The long and the short of this is this. You already have enough faith. I already have enough faith. We just don't exercise it. You've got enough. You have enough. And when the Lord says faith of a mustard seed, a mustard seed apparently is about half the size of a grain of rice. And a sycamore tree, a mulberry tree, I think it's the same as a sycamore tree as I did a little research there. It's not like a huge oak tree, but it's still a large tree. And the, the people hearing this would have understood that. If my faith was that big, I could tell that tree to get up and go jump into Lake Pontchartrain and it would do it. They understood that. It's not so much the quantity of our faith, but the quality of our faith. Jesus was implying here, you don't need, they didn't need more faith. The faith that they, already, that they already possessed, even though it was the size of a mustard seed, it was adequate. And if they would use it and exercise it, they could do great things. So Jesus is telling them, in essence, you want more faith? You're not even using the faith I've already given you. You're not using it. You're not exercising it. If you were, you could tell this mulberry tree up with you and into the sea, and it would do it. It's a, it's a bit of sarcasm there, theological sarcasm. So in practical terms, what does this mean? Well, we need to grow our faith. Take the word faith out and put trust. 
It makes it easier. Faith is a nebulous thing. We do have an object of faith. It's Jesus Christ. We don't have blind faith. Our, the object of our faith is Jesus Christ. But faith is, you know, I got faith I'll get home safely today. I got faith this will taste good. I got faith I have enough money to pay the rent. Faith that it'll all work out. It's, it can be that kind of esoteric nebulous thing. Take the word trust out. You know, if you trusted me, you could do all these great things. These verses tell us that God desires us to trust him in uncomfortable situations. Even when we talk about, he was talking about conflict there. This is how our faith grows. When we are obedient to him in the small and often unpleasant things of life, we see him work, our faith grows, our trust grows. When was the last time you obeyed the Lord and regretted it? Well, you haven't. Faith growth is not the parting. We, we, we think this faith thing, oh Lord, just, just, just give me the faith. And we have this vision of a Red Sea issue. No, that's probably not gonna happen. Our faith is something that is played out day by day. And he wants to see us be obedient in the little small things. And this no, it's no little and small thing to go and do what we talked about here with this conflict resolution. The Lord says, trust me. Trust me and your faith will grow. That's how a relationship is built, is it not? It takes time to build trust in a person, build faith in that person. You have to see it over and over and over again and your faith and your trust in that person will grow exponentially. Are you trusting the Lord? Are you living by faith? Are you being obedient to him? Do you really believe what the Bible says? Do you really believe what you pray? Do you really believe what you're taught, what you hear preached, what you sing about? Do, you, do we really believe that? Is it, how, how can, could I be convicted of, of, of showing and manifesting overtly faith in my life? If someone was following me around with an iPhone, could, could they see my faith played out? That's what I have to ask myself as I, as I read through this. Is my faith an overt thing? Is it a real thing? Or just every now and then I reach down and I pull it out because I got a problem. Very convicting, very convicting. You and I, we need to exercise the faith that we already have. That's what the Lord expects us to do is to exercise the faith that we already have. And we're to do it with humility. And when we see all these things being played out in our life, let's look at uh, Galatians 5.22. I'm kind of almost, almost done here, I promise. Galatians 5.22. How, how will you know all these things are happening? How will you know they're being played out in your life? <clears throat> Paul's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. And it's singular. It's one fruit with all these defining characteristics. When we're doing the hard things for the Lord... When you're doing them, this is what you're going to see in your life. This fruit is one thing, and it needs to grow like this. It doesn't grow a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. All these things are interdependent. Just like you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are interdependent on each other, and we don't live in a vacuum. All these characteristics, they, they're interdependent on each other. As you're, so let's, let's just look through this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Is your love growing? Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When one of these things, one of these attributes, one of these characteristics right here is growing, it pulls the other ones along with it. And then that one pulls this one along. They all build exponentially. This, this is what the Lord wants us to be. He wants us to, this fruit right here that is coming out in our, manifesting itself in our lives. This is what is best for us. 
again, against such there is, no, there is no law. And those who are Christ, that's us, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Is this thing, this adiaphora, I'm holding on to so important that I'm not gonna give it up. I am not gonna give this up. Crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. As you grow in the Lord, these adiaphora, they're gonna fall by the wayside. Why? Because if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Jesus, you know, we talk about, especially in law enforcement, we have the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, okay? The letter of the law is technically, if you drive 56 and a 55, you broke the law. But the spirit of the law is nobody's gonna write you a ticket for that. This is what Jesus is talking about here, this spirit. You know, how much do you wanna read your Bible? How much do you wanna give? How much do you wanna share? How much do you love me? How much do you love your brother or sister in Christ? This, this spirit about us, the way we comport ourselves, or, or this, this, uh, the way we're perceived by other brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, his spirit, her spirit, is it one of love, joy, peace, and so forth? Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We're unique and special, and God wants to use us in that, in that unique and special way. When we obey God in the difficult things, the hard things, the counter to the world things, the uncomfortable things, a direct result is that these attributes of the fruit of the Spirit are strengthened and they grow overtly and manifest themselves in our lives. These define the characteristics of our lives. Don't procrastinate on these things. Don't procrastinate. Do what God has called you to do in accordance with these verses we've read. His plan, we don't want to hinder God's plan. When God is you know, if we like to say calling you to do something, impressing you to do something, don't procrastinate. Go and do it. We don't want to hinder God's plan and God's timing. And Romans 8, 28 says, and yes, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Your faith will not grow until you, are, you and I are faithful in the smaller things, the simpler things. It's not my faith that is lacking. It is my obedience that is lacking. My discipline and obedience to the Lord needs to be strengthened. And as such, my faith and trust in him will grow. They're directly tied together. So as we read the last few verses here, we put all this stuff together. And these last verses, although they're longest, in essence, here's what it's saying. You and I are Christian soldiers. And all this hard stuff we just read about, we're, we're spiritual soldiers for the Lord. And guess what? As much as I'd like to be a general or a colonel or a major, I'm not. I'm not even an officer. I'm not even a non-commissioned officer. I'm not even a sergeant. I'm not a corporal. I'm not even a private first class. You know what we are? We're basic infantry, and that's how we're to see ourselves. We expect no reward on this earth. Our reward is in heaven. We don't get a trophy just for showing up to be a Christian. And that's what these last verses are talking about here. It seems like a big break, but all this difficult stuff that we've read here and what Chad preached on last week, you and I are to be grunts. We're to be the soldiers expecting a hard, to do the hard things. That's what infantry does. They do the hard things. 
the sleep deprivation, the hunger, the heavy uh, rucks that they march on, forced marches, and the enemy, and, and you're, you're afraid, you're separated from your family, and all these difficult things. That's who wins wars, is the infantry. They put on their backpack, their rucksack, and they march right into the face of the enemy. And they expect nothing out of this. So I'll close by reading the last few verses here. And which of you having us, and I'll preface it with this, you're the servant. You and I, we're the servant here. We don't have the servants. We are the servant. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he, will he, but will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he, think, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all the things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what our duty, we have done what was our duty to do. That's what you and I are to do. We're to do the duty that God has called us to do. It will go better with us. Amen? Amen. All right. Will y'all stand? And I'm going to have a prayer for us before Tanner comes up. Lord, thank you for providing these difficult verses. They're hard verses because they're directed towards us, the Christians, the ones that want to do right, the ones that have a tender heart. Yet, Lord, we see very clearly right here, you hold us to an even higher standard. Lord, let us be so sensitive how we influence others. Lord, I know no one in here, is, again, would ever do anything to deliberately cause someone to stumble and fall. I'm, I, I sincerely believe that, Lord. But Lord, let us even be more attentive to our actions so that nothing we could do could you know, directly or indirectly could ever, ever cause a brother or sister, a dear brother and sister in Christ who's been saved like we have to stumble or to fall back into sin or to be wounded, Lord. Let our conscience be so tender. Let our nature be so gentle. Let us be so humble. Let us just view ourselves indeed, Lord, if you will, as infantry at the bottom of the barrel, the bottom of the, the ranking, the bottom of the structure, almost disposable, sent out to do the very hard things, Lord. Let, it, let that be our attitude. We're nothing but just mere sinners saved by your grace, Lord. Thank you for giving us these instructions as a reminder. Not pleasant, not easy, Lord, but let us go from here with a renewed sense that you do love us. You do care about us. You are a great protector. This is not our home. This is not forever, Lord. And one day, none of these grievances None of these anxiety, none of these harms, none of these hurts will ever be a part of our lives again for eternity, forever and ever when we're in heaven with you. How we look forward, Lord, to being with you when there's no more hurting, no more harm, no more wounds, Lord. How great, what a, what a great day and glory that will be, Father. Thank you for providing for that for us. Thank you for allowing us to share in that simply because of what you've done on the cross. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.